Well, good evening to everyone. We'll be continuing a series that I've been undergoing for a while, and that is in a Bible overview series. I've been trying to go through some of the books of the Bible, go through the Old Testament books of the Bible, uh, and we've gone through the Pentateuch so far, so we've made it through the first five books of the Bible, and now we come to the book of Joshua. So this takes us into a new section of the Bible. We've gone through the Torah or the Pentateuch, and now we get into the proper books of history that begin to tell us the history of God's people, that is the history of the nation of Israel. This is a good book. It's a book that I encourage you to go back and read and study. There's some incredible stories, but there's also some very good lessons. And while we'll have to just overview this book tonight, there's way too much for us to stop at every story and pull out every detail. I hope to pull out what we can as we review this great book from the Old Testament. Now, as we just have done, we've kind of gone over some of the basics of these books as we've reviewed them. And so the title of the book is obviously Joshua. And Joshua is probably the author of the book. In fact, there's some passages in like, such as Joshua 24 verse 6 that claims Joshua wrote down these words. Now those that include his death and some of those final verses may have been added by an editor. And when I say editor, I don't mean an uninspired editor, but one of the prophets later on that compiled the book. But Joshua probably wrote the majority of the book. But that's not the reason the book bears his name. The book bears his name because he is the main character. He's the primary leader that fills in the shoes of Moses after Moses dies and leads the nation of Israel through the conquest of the promised land. Now one interesting thing about Joshua is his name was actually Hosea in the beginning back in Numbers 13 verse 8 where we read about the, uh, the spies that were sent into the land of Canaan were told about Hosea, the son of Nun. Later we'll find Joshua, the son of Nun. But these are the same individual. And that name Hosea means salvation. Well, I don't think the Old Testament tells us when or why Joshua's name was changed. It was at some point clearly changed to the name Joshua, or that was a name he was known by. And that name means Yahweh is salvation. And by the way, this is actually the same name as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek name, but his name in Hebrew would have been Joshua. It would have been the same as this man. And there's many ways that commentators have pointed out that Joshua foreshadows Christ or seems to kind of look forward to Christ, but his name certainly does. And he was a great leader. Like he had perhaps one of the most difficult jobs that we can think of in the entirety of the Bible, in the entirety of the Old Testament. He had to follow in the wake of a man like Moses. Now we all know what it's like or can imagine what it's like to fill the shoes of someone great, whether that be at work or maybe even leadership in the church or wherever it may be. When someone is just... Uh, tremendous at their job, when they're just larger than life and they pass from the scene and someone has to take their position, it's so hard to follow up an incredible person. And that's exactly what Joshua had to do. He had to follow perhaps the greatest leader of the Old Testament. This is the man that God said was the meekest man in all the earth. This is the man that God said, I speak to uh, face to face, not in dreams and visions like most other prophets. And this is who Joshua had to follow. Not only that, but 
For as great of a leader as Moses was, there were still a lot of problems. The nation of Israel had proven to be a difficult and a trying nation. And so Joshua is inheriting a nation. Now, it is the new generation that's grown up in the wilderness. But he's taking over a great man's job. But he's got a big job ahead of him. And yet, despite all that, Joshua will be an incredible, incredible leader. In fact, he will be one of the most successful leaders in all of the history of God's people. Now the time and place, uh, I've just got a map up here, and I know you probably can't see all the details there, but this is just the map of Canaan, and we'll have some different maps up here tonight, because the book of Joshua is a book about a military conquest, and so there's a lot of geography that's included in the book of Joshua. If you get to go home and read Joshua and try and study some of the passages, it would be very helpful to have a Bible atlas or a Bible map or to pull something up online because there are a lot of names and a lot of cities and a lot of territories or mountains or valleys that are mentioned throughout the book of Joshua. And if you enjoy geography and like to know where in the world those places are, then that would be very helpful. We'll look at some of that tonight, uh, but not a whole lot of it. And as far as the timing, uh, the book of Joshua completely probably covers about 25 or so years, but the main part of the book, the conquest, takes somewhere between five and seven years. And we can know that because in Je Joshua 14, when the nation is giving out the inheritances, Caleb and Joshua get special inheritances themselves because of their role from all the way back uh, from Egypt forward for their faithfulness of the only two spies that brought back a good report. But Caleb receives an inheritance. And when Caleb uh, requests his inheritance, he makes a comment in Joshua 14 that he was 40 years old when Moses sent him to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And he says, Now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years. And so, kind of depending on how you count the years, those 40 years in the wilderness and some of the things that are said, the conquest took apparently five to seven years. Now that seems like kind of a long time, but when you think about conquering this entire land, when you think about a war, a campaign, not against a city or even a territory, but against this entire area, multiple kingdoms, multiple armies, and they were able to do that in half a decade, that's an incredible, incredible feat. Now, as for the theme and the purpose of this book, first of all, it is a book that continues the history of God's people. And that's what the books of history do. They tell us the history of the nation of Israel. They show us the unfolding, the historical unfolding of God's plan. When we go all the way back to Genesis, and we see man's fall. And so we see God making a promise that he will send the seed of woman to vanquish the enemy. And then that plan begins to unfold. And we see it's going to unfold through Abraham and his descendants. And so we learn about their descendants. And now we learn about the nation that has descended from Abraham. So this is important history. Now that being said, Joshua and Samuel and kings of these books are not just history books, obviously. They're not there just to tell us some interesting histor historical information. They're there to tell us the theological history of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan through his chosen people. And that's what the book of Joshua does. And because of that, it does teach us some other great lessons. First of all, it reveals God's power. Remember, the nation of Israel has had some battles between Egypt and here. They've had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but it'd be hard to imagine of the, the nation of Israel 
as an elite army. I mean, they've only been out of slavery for 40 years. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've not had centuries to hone their uh, combat practice. And yet with God's aid and by God's aid, they're able to conquer this entire land. There's many miracles that are reported throughout the conquest of the land of Canaan. And it's very clear that while Joshua displays some military prowess, and while perhaps there were some incredibly mighty men and uh, valiant men, it's very clear that it's God who wins the war for Israel. But also it teaches the blessing of obedience. You remember from the book of Numbers when we overviewed that. I know it's been a couple months, but the book of Numbers was a book of failures. It was a book of the old generation that came out of Egypt and how they complained and they wanted to go back to Egypt and they doubted God and they would disobey God and they'd bring punishment after punishment, including the punishment to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But the book of Joshua is going to be very different. The book of Joshua is a very successful book. It's one of the most successful books in all of the Bible. In fact, of the primary historical books, and what I mean by that is Genesis and Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings, it is the only book of those books that does not contain a massive nationwide failure. There's a couple of failures in the book of Joshua that we'll see, but they really aren't that big. They're not nationwide, and they're overcome quickly and fairly easily. Not necessarily without some cost, but they're able to overcome them. Otherwise, it is a book of nothing but success. And so an outline that we can use, we can break up the book into four sections. The first five chapters are kind of the introduction, and they prepare for the conquest. It's the story of the nation, the call of Joshua, and the preparation of the people, and crossing the Jordan River so that they actually cross into the promised land, and the preparing for the conquest. Then chapters 6 through 12 tell us about the conquest. They tell us the stories in undoubtedly some abbreviated form, but they tell us how Joshua and the Israelites overcome the Canaanites and take the land. Chapters 13 through 21, those are probably the chapters that are more difficult to read through. These are what we might call the boring chapters because they describe all the allotment of the land. Now to you and I, reading about all the various boundaries and the allotment of the land and the cities of refuge and where the Levites will have pastures, that may not be all that interesting or all that exciting, but I want you to think about how amazing that must have been for the Israelites when they began doling out the inheritances. That was a fulfillment of an over four-century-old promise. It had been over 400 years since God had told Abraham, one day your descendants will possess this land. And as Joshua and the leaders began to give these inheritances, they were fulfilling that promise. They were receiving the promise. They weren't slaves anymore. They weren't vagabonds wandering about in a wilderness anymore. They now had a land and they had a home. And that would have been an incredible and a powerful thing. And then the final few chapters, we might call that settling the land. It's the conclusion. We have, some of, uh, we have an important story that we'll mention when we get there. And then some of Joshua's final words to the nation. So let's go through and just review these events as 
quickly yet as thoroughly as we can in, in our time. First of all, as we have the preparation for the conquest, chapter 1, the opening verses have some very important information. It's a wonderful passage because it's God coming to Joshua and essentially calling Joshua to leadership. Now he had already been designated the next leader, but Moses dies and God apparently comes and speaks to Joshua. And in that conversation, there are some incredible lessons to be learned. First of all, God tells Joshua again, in fact, three times he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And at least one other time he says, and do not be afraid. Now, Joshua doesn't strike me as the type of man that was cowardly or fearful. He had already fought several battles between Egypt and here. But again, he has a huge, a monumentous task ahead of him. He's getting ready to go into a land filled with warriors, filled with giants, filled with some evil people, and he's leading this country, this nation that's never really been involved in a massive war like this. And yet God says, be strong and courageous. Now those weren't just empty words that God spoke to Joshua. There were some reasons why he could be strong and courageous, primarily because it wasn't Joshua that had to win the battles. God was going to be the victor. And God was with Joshua. And he makes that clear in those opening verses in Joshua chapter 1. And he tells Joshua that it is him who's going to give Joshua and Israel the victory. He says, all the area that your feet will tread upon, I have given you. There was a promise to Joshua and the Israelites. The war had already been won. Now that didn't mean they had nothing to do. There were still battles to be fought. There were still marches to be marched. But the outcome was already a given. That sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like our hope in Christ. See, the war has been decided. Jesus has won the victory, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, but there's still work for you and I to do. Heaven is assured and it's promised for the faithful, but we have to be faithful. We have to do the walking. We have to do the fighting. We have to fulfill our part. But if we will... There is absolutely not a shadow or a shred of doubt that heaven will be ours and that the victory for our souls has been won. But there's something important in that, and that is that Joshua and the nation must observe the Lord's commands. You can read those opening verses of Joshua 1, but if you do, I want you to look for how many times God draws Joshua back to the law, to the word, to the commandments. Joshua's re responsibility to meditate upon them, to read them, and to observe them. That's the pathway to success. Not only trusting in God, but trusting in God so much that we obey Him. And while this is a very different time and a very different place, that principle is still true in the New Testament. God is present, and God has assured us of victory, but only if we listen to Him and obey Him and observe His commands. Well, chapter 2 tells the story of some spies. Instead of sending 12 spies, they send two spies this time. But they go into the land of Jericho, or the city of Jericho, and this is a great story in and of itself. We don't have time for that, but this is where we meet the woman Rahab. She is a harlot there in Jericho, but she hides these men. Now, apparently, word had got out somehow. The city leaders knew, the army knew that there were some spies. They knew there was this nation of a couple million people crossing the Jordan River, um, 
or on the other side of the Jordan River. And they knew what they were there for. And so they're looking for these spies. But Rahab hides these men because she has heard the stories of what this nation has done, of the victories their God has won for them. And she fears this God. And so she wants to be on the right side. And she becomes a very unlikely hero. And she's an interesting woman because you wouldn't initially think of a harlot, especially a Canaanite harlot, being a hero in the Bible story. And yet she is, and she's remembered several times throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, at least three times in the New Testament, we find Rahab mentioned. First of all, she's a part of the genealogy of Jesus. She's going to marry one of these men that's a spy. They're going to one of their great-great-grandsons, or further on down the line even than that, is going to be King David. And of course, that means later on down the line, Jesus is going to be a descendant of Rahab. What an incredible change of stories. But also, she's listed in that great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She's used as an example of faith. And James uses her as an example of faith that acts, that works, that observes the Lord's commands in James chapter 2, 25. So she becomes a great Bible character and a great Bible hero. And then chapters 3 through 5 basically tell of the nation crossing the Jordan River. Now there's a problem. You've got this nation of about 2 million people. They're standing here. They need to get over there, but there's the Jordan River in the way. And how do they cross the Jordan River? Well, they're going to cross the Jordan River the same way that they left and enter the land of promise the same way that they had left Egypt. God works a miracle and dries up the Jordan River. The winds make sure that the waters are parted. And the nation of Israel is able to cross over the Jordan River. Now that may not sound nearly as impressive as the entire Red Sea. But it still must have been an amazing thing. And remember, most of those people there that day hadn't been alive when Israel crossed the Red Sea. Most of these people have died, have been born in the wilderness. They grew up hearing the stories of that time when God parted the Red Sea for their parents and their grandparents to cross over and be saved from Egypt. But now they get to witness that tremendous power of God. Now for Joshua and Caleb, imagine the memories it brought back. Imagine the pain it also brought back in thinking that they should have done this so long ago. It had been four decades since God had brought them out of Egypt. And they were just now crossing into the land of Canaan. But what a reminder to Joshua and Caleb of the great blessings of faithfulness. They hadn't died in the wilderness like so many others. And they had to wait a long time. But their faithfulness and their dedication was going to be rewarded. And now they finally got to cross the Jordan River and head into the promised land and begin their conquest. A few other things are mentioned in those passages. Apparently during the wilderness, the nation had not been practicing circumcision. And so God commands them to begin that again before they begin this conquest. And it was the time of the Passover. So it's been 40 years since that first Passover was instituted. But they celebrate it again now, not ready to leave Egypt, but ready to inherit the promised land. And the next day, they eat the corn of the land. And the Bible says that never again did they eat manna. So that wondrous food, that divine food that had fed and sustained God's people for 40 years came to an end as these, this nation enters the land of Canaan. Well, then we get into the actual conquest itself. And Joshua uses a strategy that is 
an incredible it's an incredible strategy it's almost so simple that we wouldn't think of it as taking a great deal of smarts but it's the same strategy that's used by armies even to this day and that's what you might call the divide and conquer strategy again i'm not worried about all these cities that i know you can't see but joshua and the army will cross just north of the dead sea here and this is about the central area of canaan and they're going to establish a foothold in what we might call the central campaign. They're going to take Jericho and I and Gilgal and they will establish a foothold that divides the northern area of Canaan from the southern area of Canaan. That will allow them to then go down and defeat and conquer the southern area before they then turn their sights to the northern. So you've got a central campaign, a southern campaign, and a northern campaign in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Chapter 6, of course, tells us the great story of the fall of Jericho, the very first city to be destroyed by in this conquest. We don't have time to talk all about it. I also think it's a pretty well-known story, but it's a story that shows the people and us the power of God. I think God wanted the Israelites to understand from the very beginning he was the one who was winning these battles. Because here you have Jericho, a well-fortified city. A lot of commentators and historians think this may have actually been a military city. And so it would have been very important to take, but it would have been very hard to take. Like There's different um, pictures you can see and look up of what people think the city looked like. They believed there was probably an outer wall and even an inner wall that was higher up. And it would have been a very difficult city to take. So how does Israel begin this conquest? Well, God tells them to go out one day and to have the Ark of the Covenant in front and the army's going to march around the city one time and then they're going to go back to their camp. And then day two, they're going to come out and they're going to do the same thing. and They're going to march around the city and day three and day four. And you can only imagine what the soldiers and the rulers of Jericho are thinking as they're standing on their walls and they're just watching this progression, just walk silently around their city and then go home. It must have been a very strange thing indeed. And then finally on day seven, God says, today you're going to go around seven times. And after you've gone around that city, then you're going to blow the trumpets and you're going to shout with a great shout. Again, I can't imagine what it must have been like in Jericho. Day seven comes and they see the army circle around and they're expecting them to just head home. And then they start going around again and they go around again. And this probably took hours and hours for them to do this. And then all of a sudden they hear these trumpets blow and they hear that army and that nation shout. And then they begin to hear a great rumble and a great quake and the walls of the city literally just fall down. And all of the defenses that had kept them safe were gone in a moment. And Israel is able to rush in and win a swift and a decisive victory. Now surely nobody in Israel thought that it was their military prowess that had won that battle. It was God who was fighting for them. This must have melted the hearts of many in the land of Canaan if they ever heard the story to know that Israel had a God like this fighting for them, the one and only God. Of course, Rahab and her family are saved. They uh, let the red cord out of the window as they had been instructed to and stayed inside, and so they were saved. But the city of Jericho was taken. Now with such a resounding victory, you would expect the next story to be just as successful. But here we have one of the shortfalls in the book of Joshua. There's a small little city called Ai or Ai. And the, the um, soldiers tell Joshua, the commanders say, it's a small city. We only need a couple of thousand and we'll go take care of this city. And so the army goes out and they're defeated. Now they just took Jericho. 
and they can't even defeat this tiny little city of Ai, but many are killed and they must run in defeat or they must retreat. Joshua is vexed. The nation is vexed. Now one thing, you don't see quite the same complaining that you do back in the wilderness years. You see them wondering why in the world this has happened. And Joshua pleads with the Lord. And it's found out that someone in the camp has done something sinful. You see, back when Jericho was conquered, God had given a command. And that was that the spoil of Jericho was not to be taken. That was kind of like a first fruits. Like a sacrifice. Now, one of the ways that this nation of Israel is going to be sustained and be able to begin in this land of Canaan is through the spoils of war. And yet the very first city that they conquer, God says, you don't touch any of it. You devote all of it to destruction. Now, what did that require? That required some faith. Sure, they had seen the walls of Jericho come down. But they had to walk by and let all this gold and all this clothing and all these goods just lay there and go to nothing. But it could have gone to help them as a people in their conquest. But they had to trust in and obey God. But there was a man who hadn't done that. There was a man by the name of Achan. And when he had seen some of the items of clothing and gold and silver, he had taken these things. And he hid them in his tent. And so the nation of Israel begins to cast lots. And so they narrow it down in a divinely uh, led process. They're able to narrow it down to the tribe, and the clan, and the family, and finally to the man Achan himself. He confesses what he has done. The contraband is found, and he is killed. By the nation of Israel, he's stoned, and his, he and his things are burned. And thus the evil is purged from the land or from the people of Israel. There's a lot of other things there that are some interesting questions and thoughts. But we don't have time but with uh, to go into. But I encourage you to read and study them further. Uh, but with that, Joshua is able to go back to the city of Ai. Ai. And they kind of use a great ploy. He sends some people around to the back of the city to wait in ambush. He leads the army against the city. And they pretend like they're retreating. The men think they've got them beat again. And the soldiers all leave the city of Ai. And as soon as they're out, the ambush squad comes in and lights the city on fire. And comes out and the soldiers are trapped between Joshua and the other party. And so they win this battle. And then after that, we have a couple chapters that may seem strange to us. But chapter 8 is a very important chapter. After this uh, defeat of Jericho and Ai then Israel has a foothold in central Canaan. But instead of pressing the advantage or instead of continuing on their way, they pause for something very important. And that is to travel up to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim where they're going to erect an altar and offer sacrifices and they're going to read the law of Moses. Now that doesn't seem like a great strategical move. When you're in the middle of hostile territory. Sure you've got a foothold. But there's a lot of enemies to your north and to your south. Why are you taking time to go read your Bible? Well because that's what God had told them to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 29. said when you're, the Lord your God brings you to the land. That you are entering to take possession of it. You shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim. And the curse on Mount Ebal. Deuteronomy chapter 27 talks about that further. And explains that a little bit more. Now here's the thing. And, I, and I'd have to reread it a little bit closer. I don't know. That there's anything that tells them exactly when they had to do this. And I suppose they could have easily decided. Let's wait until this all of this is done. 
let's wait until we've conquered the land of Canaan before we do this. But I think this is an indication of why Joshua and the nation are so successful. Because their first priority is obeying God. They don't put off obeying God until they've got everything else in order. They go and they fulfill this command immediately. As soon as they get in and have any type of a foothold in Canaan, they march up to Ebal and Gerizim, which those are two mountains on either side of Shechem, uh, where Jacob had spent so much time, and they do what the law had told them to do. They read the blessings, and they read the curses, and they read the law of Moses. Joshua 8 records this, and the idea that all Israel is there and that Mo Joshua reads all of the words says there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. Why were the Israelites so successful under Joshua? Because they were a people given to God's law. Because they loved his law, they read his law, and they obeyed his law. And even today, while we live under a different law, the law of grace and truth, if we wish to be successful in our spiritual warfare, we need to be people that go to the law of God, that love the word of God, that obey the word of God. Not people that put it off until we've got all the rest of the chores done. Not people that put it off until we've gotten everything else in our life straightened. But people that want to know the word of God and obey it. Chapter 9, we have the next failure that takes place. And again, it's kind of a small failure, but it demonstrates an important lesson. There's a city called Gibeon. Uh, the, these are the Gibeonites. They realize that they are going to be crushed by Israel. They also know somehow that Israel's not making treaties with anybody in Canaan. Now they will make treaties with nations from far off, but they're not going to make treaties with the local people. And so they send out some messengers and they're only a few miles away from, Ju uh, from Joshua's camp, but they put on old raggedy clothes and they put on sandals that are worn out and they put stale moldy bread in their bags so that when they get to Joshua's camp, it looks like they've come from a faraway land. And they tell them the story, you know, we want to come make a treaty with you and our people. And uh, the Joshua and them are a little suspicious, but they look at them and they say, well, their clothes are worn out and their sandals are shoddy and uh, they have moldy bread. And so they go ahead and they make a treaty with these people. And Joshua 9 verse 14 and 15 says, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And then it, finally the deceit is found out. Interestingly, even though it was a treaty signed by deceit, it was clear that God expected his people to keep their word. And Joshua expected the people to keep their word. Now they ended up putting the Gibeonites into slave labor, essentially. But they were not going to destroy the Gibeonites. And interestingly... God is able to use this failure. Now, Israel should have done better. And it's clear that they didn't, for one time, they didn't take counsel with the Lord. And that could have saved them here. It could have helped them. But they made that mistake. But God is able to work <laughs> even through the mistakes of men. Because it's actually that situation that leads to a great opportunity for Joshua to conquer the southern area. See what happens is the king of Jerusalem, which is not at this time, obviously under 
Israelite control. He gets five, four of the other kings from the southern area to help him. They've heard that Gibeon has made this alliance, and so they're going to go take vengeance on Gibeon, and the, these five armies march upon Gibeon. Well, the Gibeonites send and ask Joshua for help, since now they are essentially part of Israel. And so Joshua and the army marched from Gilgal over to Gibeon. They had to march all through the night in order to do this. But when they get there, they immediately engage in battle. They've been able to get there quicker than the other armies thought they could. So they surprise them and they go into battle. And God begins to fight for them again. In fact, it says that God began to throw large hailstones from the sky. And the hailstones killed more enemy soldiers than Joshua and his men. But it was clear that they weren't going to have enough time to defeat this army. So the Bible tells us that Joshua prayed to God and asked for more time. And God made the sun stand still. Perhaps one of the most amazing miracles in all the... An incredible miracle. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if God stopped the earth spinning. I don't know if God made miraculous sunlight for a while. It's kind of interesting to think about how it could have even happened. But God prolonged the day so that Joshua could continue the fight. And he defeats these armies. Now these armies and these kings try and escape. Like all five kings end up down here in Makedah in a cave. And Joshua and the army find them and execute them. And now that these armies have all been demolished in this battle. It's easy pickings for it, Joshua and the army to go to each of these cities. And conquer all of these cities. And it probably took some time clearly. But there's not much resistance. And so they're able to defeat the southern portion of Canaan. And then chapter 11 tells us about the northern campaign. And this is an interesting one in its own right, because by this time, the kings of the north have figured out what's going on. They figured out Israel's conquering. And so all the kings of the north had amassed together, and they had come up and combined to make a fighting force that the Bible says was innumerable. Now, so far, Joshua and the Israelites have fought a city or a group of a few kings, but all of the north gathers together and they now face an army that when they look at it looks like the sand of the seashore. You know what's amazing about this? God tells Joshua not to be afraid, but to go fight them. And there's not one single miracle recorded in the northern campaign. But still, God was able to work through his people and to win a battle that was surely greatly outnumbered. The Israelites had to be outnumbered and yet they're able to defeat this area. And that brings the land of Canaan squarely under Israelite control. There's still pockets that they will need to go and conquer, but this gives them the land of Canaan. And so then in chapter 12, it reviews the kings that are uh, conquered. And then the next section of the book, chapters 13 through 24, give out the inheritances, the tribes of the east of the Jordan, uh, Gad and, and half of Manus, Manasseh and Reuben uh, are, had already picked theirs out. But then chapter 14 talks about Caleb's inheritance. And then Judah and Ephraim and the other half of Manasseh are given their inheritances. And then the nation travels up, and I don't know if it's on the, the map here, but they travel up to Shiloh, and the remaining tribes are it's spelled out where their inheritances will be. And also the cities of refuge, as well as the pastures and cities for the Levites and their provision are all settled, and they're able to go and take possession of their lands. And that brings us to the final section 
of settling into the land. There's an important story in chapter 22, and we don't have time to tell the entire story. But what happens is the nations that, or the tribes, those two and a half tribes that had gone east of the Jordan, they began to think to themselves and to worry a little bit that that separation from the other tribes may cause problems in the future. And they thought, what if they don't let our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren go back over and worship God? That says something about those people that they were worried about the future and they were worried about the spiritual well-being of their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Too often people get so focused on right now and we don't worry about the future. But our decisions have an impact not only on our souls, but perhaps the souls of even our descendants. And so what they did is they began to build an altar. And this was meant to be a reminder between them and the western tribes that they were one people. Now, the western tribes see this altar being built and they think that they are building an altar to worship God, which was a violation of the, of the law. They were not supposed to build an altar other than where God had told them to. And the Ark of the Covenant isn't up here. They're not supposed to be building altars to worship God at. But what we ha- and so what the western tribes do is they all amass. And they come and they basically march on the eastern tribes. And they send them a message and say, listen... If it's too hard for you to live over on the eastern side and you're going to begin partaking in false worship, then you come back over here with us and we'll even give you part of our inheritance. But if you're going to go down the road of falsehood and idolatry, then we will attack. Now, there's some lessons to be learned there. First of all, there's the problem of assuming. They assumed that this altar was something that it wasn't, but the Western tribes also show some wisdom because they didn't just attack. They go and they talk to their brethren. And the misunderstandings cleared up. How many times do people get mad at one another and bitterness arrives and it could have all been avoided if they would have just talked and realized there was a misunderstanding. I also think the Western tribes loved their brethren. They offered to give up some of their inheritance to help the Eastern tribes, if they needed it. Their worry was about resolving things with their brethren. They weren't excited to destroy their brethren. They wanted to help them. But above all, they wanted to honor and glorify God. And they thought that that was being put at danger. And so chapter 22, that's a very quick, very inadequate explanation of that story. But I encourage you to read it and study it some on your own. There's a lot of good principles there. But then the final two chapters are in the future when Joshua is approaching his death. He calls the nation together to give them some final challenges and encourage them. And we have there that wonderful verse that's very well known, perhaps the most famous verse in Joshua, when he stands before the nation and says, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think that's one of the reasons Joshua was successful. He made it so clear who he was going to serve. And he inspired others to do the same. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Joshua died at 110 years of age, that the nation continued to do righteously throughout all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Joshua was such an impactful leader that even for some substantial amount of time after his death, people were still obeying God. That's an incredible leader and an incredible man. And when you think about Joshua, 
and his life, it is an incredible story. This man was born as a slave in Egypt. They don't think that because most of his story takes place in the wilderness and fighting in the, in the promised land. But he was born a slave. He grew up a slave. But then he witnessed Moses come with his message of deliverance. He saw the ten plagues that God rained upon mighty Egypt. He was there and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. He was on Mount Sinai. He didn't go as far up as Moses did, but he was there on Mount Sinai. He witnessed God's wrath with, over the incident with the golden calf. He also witnessed God's deliverance at time and time again. Water from the rock on multiple occasions. Bitter, bitter waters made sweet. People saved from venomous serpent bites through the golden snake that um, God instructed Moses to build. He won victories in battle because of God's deliverance. He learned under the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and then he was able to lead the conquest of the promised land. And yet. As great as he was. The story of Joshua. Is still a story that ends in death. In fact for all the wonderful things. About the book of Joshua. The, past, the last few verses. Are about the death of Joshua. And some of the other leaders. In Canaan. And we're still not at a resolution. We still don't have the deliverer that God promised in Genesis 3.15. Yes, now Israel's in the land. Now they have a nation. But sin still hasn't been defeated. Sin hasn't been vanquished. The Canaanites have been driven out of the land by and large. But Satan hasn't been dealt with. And so Joshua is a great and incredible man. But he only looks forward to the real deliverer. The real hope, the real Jesus, who is the salvation of Jehovah. And that is our Lord and our Christ. But the lessons that Joshua gives us are wonderful indeed. And I hope that this overview of that book of Joshua has helped you understand the book, if nothing more than just its flow and the things that are in it. But I hope it maybe has given you a foundation you can take and study this book further on your own. As we bring this sermon to a close, we'd like to extend the invitation. If there's someone here who needs to obey the gospel, that opportunity is yours. Or if there's a Christian here who needs the prayers of the church, then we stand ready and willing to pray with you and for you. So if there be one in need, we invite you to come while we stand and sing this song.